This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem. Of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse and corruption that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On July 30th, 1911, the steamership, the SS Guiana, had just arrived in New York City after an arduous journey. For one month, it had made its voyage from the turquoise sea of the Caribbean up the deep and dark Atlantic. And now, finally, it had arrived in the gray, oil-tinged waters of New York City's upper bay. On one side of the ship's deck, well-to-do passengers in fine coats and elegant hats sat in deck chairs as they watched the Statue of Liberty grow larger on the horizon. On the other, dozens of young black women crowded along the ship's railing to do the same. Among them, a thin 13-year-old girl pushed her way through the throng. As she reached the railing, she gazed out onto the skyline of New York City. She was just a wisp of a girl, but tall, with dark, shrewd eyes that belied her age. As soon as she set foot in America, she would use this to her advantage. On Ellis Island, while the other black passengers of the SS Guiana were processed, an immigration agent asked the girl to state her age. Knowing that 13 was far too young to travel alone, the girl bluffed. She said, 23. The agent looked up from his papers, giving the skinny girl a skeptical look. He took in her height, and then her youthful face. But the girl held steady, peering right back. The agent sighed. On her documents, he scrawled, about 23 years. He handed her her papers and said, Welcome to America, Miss St. Clair. It was Stephanie St. Clair's first lesson in her new country. All rules can be bent, but there were some she was determined to break. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? 
We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're talking about Stephanie St. Clair, arguably New York City's first black woman gangster whose influence shaped the organized crime world during the 1920s and 30s. This week, we'll delve into the mystery around Stephanie's early life and her first foray into the underworld, a venture that led her to establish one of the most lucrative numbers rackets in New York history. Next week, we'll examine Stephanie's impact on her community, her struggle with the white mob, and the legacy she left behind. Little is known about Stephanie St. Clair's life before her criminal career. This is partly due to her race and partly due to the time and place of her birth. As a black woman born in the 1800s, formal records of her history were few and far between, a fact that would play to her advantage later in life. However, there are some things we know for sure. Stephanie St. Clair was born on December 24, 1897, in the French West Indies, on what is known today as the Caribbean Archipelago of Guadeloupe. She was the third child of four and the oldest daughter of Amadie St. Clair and Ancelot Martreau. Stephanie was born over 50 years after the abolition of slavery in the West Indies, and so her parents lived as free people. But the St. Clairs weren't just free. They were part of an elite social and economic class on Guadeloupe. Because records show that Stephanie's parents were married, we can assume that they held a higher status among other black islanders. According to her book, The World of Stephanie St. Clair, an entrepreneur, race woman, and outlaw in early 20th century Harlem, author Shirley Stewart writes that a government-acknowledged marriage was one of the limited privileges granted to these upper-class black citizens at the time, and the basis of this status was almost entirely determined by a combination of a person's ancestry and their resources. Those whose relatives were more recent slaves were considered lower class. They'd had limited access to money and education. However, those individuals with longer histories of free ancestors were able to inherit and accumulate wealth, and in some cases, even land. Stewart goes on to explain that these elite black islanders commonly worked in a skilled trade directly under or beside the small population of wealthy whites on Guadeloupe. Stephanie's father, for instance, was most likely an artisan and well-respected in the community. 
Education was another privilege that the St. Clairs enjoyed. Unlike many black girls at the time, Stephanie was put in school and taught to read and write in both French and English. It was important to her parents that their children take advantage of their education and continue to elevate their family station. The St. Clairs were very proud of their distinguished place in the community, which is why it hurt deeply when that status was put at risk. Around 1908, when Stephanie was just 11 years old, her father Amadi passed away. This was a huge blow to the St. Clair family. It was his work that had afforded his family the relative wealth and education they had. And without him, Stephanie's mother, Onslaw, was left with no source of income and four young mouths to feed. Onslaw struggled to keep up appearances in the community, but money quickly dwindled, and she compensated by dipping into her daughter's dowries. Eventually, she was forced to take Stephanie out of school. With no education and limited marriage prospects, Stephanie's future began to dim. Onslaw knew that keeping her daughter on Guadeloupe would sentence Stephanie to a life of hardship and no mobility. So she looked elsewhere. Sending Stephanie to France would have been the obvious choice for Onslaw, given that French was the national language of Guadeloupe. However, France was suffering a cholera epidemic at the time, and shipping Stephanie there would have meant delivering her daughter to her death. Instead, arrangements were made for Stephanie to travel to French-speaking Montreal on a transatlantic ship by way of New York City. The voyage would be a long 20 days in the steerage section of a luxury steamship, and 13-year-old Stephanie would go alone. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. Leaving your family and home country alone, and at such a young age, no doubt has psychological consequences. But in some cases, it can help young immigrants develop what researchers Matthias Gewuzalem and Valdemar Mittag call self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is an individual's perceived belief in their ability to control their circumstances and their own potential for success. Gewuzalem and Mittag write that self-efficacy is mainly influenced by the ratio between an individual's access to resources and their exposure to constraints. For example, a constraint may be the loss of a social support system, while a resource, like the promise of employment, would mitigate that constraint, which was exactly the case for Stephanie St. Clair. Before her voyage to Montreal, Stephanie's mother used an employment agency to find her work. Wealthy Canadians were looking for young, French-speaking black women to serve as maids or nannies in their mostly white households, Girls like Stephanie were in demand. So when Stephanie left her home island and her family behind, she at least knew she had a job and housing waiting for her on the other side of the world. This would have given the young girl a sense of security and purpose rather than helplessness. And thus a greater sense of self-efficacy. Gewuzalem and Mittag's research shows that individuals with high self-efficacy adapt to new environments more easily. They trust themselves to meet the demands of their circumstances, interpreting them as challenges rather than threats. Simply put, it makes a person bold. 
a quality that Stephanie St. Clair soon had in spades. This sense of agency, or what others would later describe as her fighting spirit, would become one of Stephanie's most defining characteristics. Once she stepped aboard the SS Guiana, Stephanie left a life of relative comfort with her family behind. Though the SS Guiana was billed as a luxury steamer ship with opulent cabins and high-class amenities for the wealthy tourists, life below deck was very different. Dozens of black Caribbean women were traveling in steerage. They struggled for space and fresh air in the ship's crowded underbelly. And if it became too stifling, the women's only other option was to sleep on the main deck, exposed to the harsh elements of the open ocean. On the SS Guiana, Stephanie was no longer the young lady of a respected black family. She was glorified chattel. For the 20 days that the SS Guiana slowly made its way to New York City, 13-year-old Stephanie St. Clair learned a hard lesson in class. While the rich sipped champagne in the ballrooms above her head, Stephanie fought for scraps of a measly dinner in steerage below. If you wanted something, she learned, you needed to fight for it, by any means necessary. So when 13-year-old Stephanie finally arrived on Ellis Island for processing in a new country, she took destiny into her own hands and molded it to her will. She was 23 now, not 13. And in some ways, her new age fit her better than 13 ever had. Her experience lying to the immigration official would shape Stephanie's understanding of government institutions and laws for the rest of her life. Everything, she learned, was a game. And the day Stephanie came to America, she decided to play. After her release from Ellis Island, Stephanie traveled north to Montreal to work for the Canadian Dubois family. There, she spent the rest of her teenage years toiling in domestic servitude. Little is known about Stephanie's time in Montreal, but because she left Canada after no more than five years, a relatively short period of time for a live-in domestic worker, we can assume that the life of a maid didn't suit the strong-willed girl. Stephanie most likely couldn't stand the pointless drudgery and limited freedom. Ultimately, she abandoned her post. Now, for perhaps the first time in her young life, Stephanie's destiny was in her own hands. She was faced with a choice, return to her home country, her beloved island, and back to the arms of her family, or stay on her new continent, utterly alone, and live the life of opportunity her mother had hoped for her. Stephanie, unsurprisingly, made the bold choice. Around 1916, Stephanie St. Clair crossed the border back into New York, leaving her past life of domestic servitude far behind her. She was only 18, but her paper stated that she was a full decade older at 28. With her second chance at a fresh start, Stephanie was looking to redefine herself in her new home. The possibilities seemed endless in such a bustling metropolis. For a black woman, and especially an immigrant in the 1900s, the opportunities in the land of the free weren't as abundant as promised. 
But there was a new era dawning in New York City, and Stephanie St. Clair had arrived just in time to help usher it in. 1916 was a year at the cusp of two historical evolutions for Black people in New York, the Great Migration and the Harlem Renaissance. The Great Migration was a historical exodus of African Americans from the rural South to northern cities. From roughly 1916 to 1940, hundreds of thousands of people moved north to escape the repression of Jim Crow laws. This influx of black people into New York City would become one of the key catalysts for the Harlem Renaissance. This was a period of social and cultural change in New York City dating from roughly 1918 to 1935. It was a time of new intellectualism and artistry that reflected the modern black experience. And it all took place in the northern Manhattan neighborhood of Harlem. So when Stephanie St. Clair re-entered New York City, she, like thousands of other black New Yorkers, decided to settle in Harlem. In a burgeoning black community, Stephanie's race was no longer a barrier to employment, and she'd find that her immigrant background was actually a boon. Because of her elite upbringing in Guadeloupe, Stephanie received an education that most black women born in America never had access to. Not only could she read and write in both French and English, she had some education in math, and soon these skills proved incredibly useful. In 1916, 18-year-old Stephanie was desperate for work. Anything, she thought, would be better than the drudgery of being a maid. And after spending some time in her new neighborhood, she found her opportunity. Stephanie used the rarity of her education to her advantage and landed a position working as a bookkeeper at a local policy bank. It was a well-paying and respectable job. It was also entirely illegal. When we return, Stephanie St. Clair cuts her teeth in the underworld of policy banking and finds opportunity in the Prohibition era. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. Around 1916, 18-year-old Stephanie St. Clair had found herself back in New York City in a great era of change. The Great Migration and the subsequent Harlem Renaissance had started opening doors for Black people in Black-majority communities, and teenage Stephanie had secured herself a job as the bookkeeper of a Harlem policy banker, an enviable yet criminal position. Policy banking can be described simply as half lottery and half investment. Because it was a numbers racket, it was technically an illegal form of gambling and considered by police to be a misdemeanor offense. 
But policy banking was also a credible institution within black communities at the turn of the 20th century. At the time, many mainstream banks refused to serve black clients, leaving African Americans with few options to invest their money. As a result, policy banking was created in communities like Harlem to fill this need. Participating in a policy bank gave players a chance to accumulate large amounts of money they wouldn't have access to otherwise. This was done through a numbers game, a lottery-like system where bettors would select a three-digit number and choose an amount to put down on that number. Those who hit the lucky combination would collect the pot. It wasn't a guarantee, but if you won, the reward from the numbers game was better than any bank loan. Winners were paid off quickly and handsomely in tax-free cash. It was a form of entertainment that everyone in the community could participate in and benefit from, regardless of class or income. All it took was a few pennies. While policy banking was illegal, it was also entirely nonviolent, a victimless crime. And soon, it was Stephanie St. Clair's empire of choice. For the next six years, Stephanie worked as a bookkeeper for the male policy banker. She observed closely, paying careful attention to his strategies and the way the banker conducted himself. Running a policy bank, Stephanie learned, required shrewd judgment and an incredible work ethic. Every day, a new numbers game was generated for clients. And every day, they coordinated hundreds of bets and thousands of dollars, not to mention the dozens of staff. Policy banking was no cakewalk. It was a business after all, albeit an illegal one. And Stephanie became a quick study. During her tutelage under the policy banker, she handily balanced numbers while also navigating a sea of different personalities within and outside the business. Gaining Better's trust was a huge component of a banker's success, and Stephanie went out of her way to forge relationships. She became a face that people knew within the community, and hers was a hard one to forget. Stephanie St. Clair was a beauty by many standards. She was tall and slender, with fine-boned features and an elegant air. And as a French-speaking black woman, she was somewhat of a novelty in Harlem. Stephanie capitalized on this. Around 1918, while in her early 20s, she began fashioning an entirely new identity for herself built on the foundation of her mother tongue. She began telling people that she was European, originally hailing from the French city of Marseille. To drive the point home, anytime someone asked about her home country, she answered their question in perfect French. Americans, she found, could not tell the difference between a genuine French accent and the heavily accented dialect spoken on the islands of the West Indies. And so, Stephanie began to successfully reinvent herself as an elegant European lady. It was all part of a new persona, a projection of how she wished to be seen, as opposed to who she really was. Perhaps Stephanie obscured her history because she hoped to create an air of sophistication in her new life in America. Or perhaps, in some way, this newly claimed elegance was her dedication to her mother. Onslaught St. Clair had been a respected lady all of Stephanie's life until her husband's death. This refinement was important to her mother. 
and by sending Stephanie to America, she had taken a great risk in the hope that Stephanie would one day have the chance to become a respected lady herself. We can only speculate the reason for Stephanie's decision to claim a false European identity. However, the social climate at that time between African-American and Black Caribbean immigrants may shed light on another reason. In the 1920s, animosity had begun to build between these two groups, partly due to jealousy. In the U.S., many African-Americans were denied an education, or at least a substantial one. Caribbean immigrants, however, had a reputation for coming to the U.S. highly literate and fairly well-educated. This glaring difference fostered resentment in black Americans as the two groups began competing for resources and employment in an increasingly crowded city. Essentially, they were pitted against each other by virtue of their limited opportunity. To Stephanie, reshaping the story of her origin may have been a way to avoid tension with her new Harlem neighbors and clients. According to researcher Marco Valenta, this is a somewhat common approach used among first-generation immigrants in the face of local prejudice. Many times, individuals will choose to adjust their names, accents, or appearances to better fit their adopted country. However, some immigrants will take this even further and present a new identity entirely. Most often, these false identities hail from a country considered more high-status than their actual home. It's a strategy that Valenta calls covering. European countries especially are common for immigrants to claim as their cover places of origin. So once again, Stephanie molded her identity to fit her needs, just as she had convinced the immigrant official on Ellis Island that she was a decade older, Stephanie convinced the good people of Harlem that she was, in fact, a refined Frenchwoman. And she nailed the performance. Everyone Stephanie St. Clair met in Harlem remembered the beautiful Frenchwoman who took their numbers game bets. She endeared herself to her neighbors and gained their trust. She knew everyone's names and would ask after their children and their health. As far as they knew, Stephanie St. Clair cared about them. And with her, their money was always in good hands. But these niceties weren't without purpose. With Stephanie, there was always an endgame. In her early 20s, it was winning over the people of Harlem. She was deliberately building a reputation for herself, one by one, person by person, priming the pump for the day she began her own policy banking business. She was just waiting for the right moment. And in 1920, when Stephanie was 22, that moment arrived. Prohibition was enacted that year, beginning a 13-year-long renaissance of organized crime. Of course, mobs already existed prior to 1920, but prohibition just fed the beast. While legal saloons closed, almost immediately, the doors to gin joints opened. Speakeasies began to pop up in every neighborhood in New York City, and many were based in private apartments. It didn't matter who ran the operation, whether black or white, it was all illegal. A black man's booze was as good as any other. The energy in Manhattan was electric. Stephanie was living in a time where the boundaries between illegal and legal were blurred beyond recognition. 
Her environment was finally catching up with her personal philosophy. All rules can be bent. Right and left, her neighbors were profiting off prohibition. And more Harlem residents making money meant two things. A need for banking and a need for an entertainment outlet, a place to use their new disposable income. Policy banking would fulfill both. It was finally the moment for Stephanie St. Clair to make her next move. And this time, she was taking a gamble. She was going into business for herself. When we return, Stephanie opens her own policy bank, leading her on the path to becoming Madame St. Clair. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Now back to the story. In 1923, after six years working as a bookkeeper in an illegal numbers racket, Stephanie St. Clair struck out on her own. At age 25, she opened her own policy bank. It was a huge undertaking, and it wasn't cheap either. She invested $10,000 in the new operation, an amount that would total almost $150,000 today. It's unclear where Stephanie acquired the seed money for the operation. It was nearly impossible to raise startup capital as a woman in the 1920s, and black men couldn't expect to obtain loans from mainstream banks for their legitimate businesses, let alone black women running illegal ones. It was most likely from many sources, including her own savings. After all, Stephanie had been working for over a decade, starting at age 13. If this is true, then such a long-term accumulation of savings would mean that Stephanie always planned to embark on some sort of entrepreneurial pursuit. Like everything in Stephanie's life, what she did was intentional. But the start of her policy bank was notable for an entirely different reason. Though Black-owned businesses were beginning to flourish in 1920s Harlem with the start of the Harlem Renaissance and Prohibition, Black people still owned and operated less than 20% of all businesses in the area. The remaining 80% was claimed almost entirely by white business people living outside of the neighborhood. And of the few women-owned businesses in Harlem, most of these were beauty parlors or cleaning services. Stephanie was the only black woman running her own policy bank. Like most things in the 1920s, numbers games were a male-dominated scene. But ironically, it was perhaps one of the few fields she could pursue where her success wasn't narrowed due to race or gender. 
policy banking was already operating outside the constraints of legality and therefore didn't play by the same rules as other businesses in a normative, oppressive society. It was a fitting place for a black woman to gain power. Crime gave Stephanie St. Clair the freedom for her star to rise, and it rose high. Beneath the guise of the elegant French lady, Stephanie was all work ethic. From the start, she threw herself into the policy bank, and when she opened her doors, she was running the operation almost single-handedly, save for a couple of support staff. It was hard to attract employees as a woman who barely had a business to speak of, so Stephanie got her hands dirty, most likely functioning in every position herself as a runner, bookkeeper, controller, and administrator until she could manage to recruit support. Like many new businesses, the beginning was a slog. And like many, the policy bank was also a risk. Stephanie likely put the entirety of her savings on the line. She'd taken a gamble, hoping that she could not only accomplish what she'd set out to do, but that she could be successful doing it. This was a tall order, but she was prepared. Stephanie had trained for this role for six years, working under the dapper male policy banker as she built relationships with her past clients in Harlem. And soon, all of her years of stockpiling goodwill in the community paid off. The entire neighborhood knew that Stephanie was sharp and resolute. She soon had a full list of faithful clients giving the eccentric French woman their bets. She was finally getting traction. And with more business came more employees. In the mid-1920s, before Stephanie was even 30, her operation grew from just a handful of workers to almost 60 employees. 40 of these employees were runners. Stephanie tended to hire discreet, respectable-looking men who wouldn't make a cop look twice. They would go door-to-door, visit numbers players' homes, take down their wagers on slips of paper, and return to the policy bank. Then they would hand the collected money from the clients to the controllers. Controllers were essentially accountants who would reconcile the money and bets with the clerks who worked under them. And if a player was lucky, the runners would return the next day with their winnings. And each day, the cycle would begin again. The operation was complicated, and without the use of computers, all the adding was an arduous task. Running an underground gambling ring may have been criminal, but that didn't mean it wasn't hard work. Policy banks pulled their weight in the community, serving as one of the biggest employers in Harlem. Some of the most successful policy bankers had a hundred or more staff working below them. So Stephanie's business of just 60 had everything to prove. And to Stephanie, that meant showing her clients that she had their best interests in mind. Knowing her community was poor, she lowered the entry-level bet amount to just six cents, creating an inclusive space for residents across class lines. And as Stephanie St. Clair began raking in the cash, Harlem benefited. All of her employees got a percentage of that day's numbers bets. Outside of the business, Stephanie spread a portion of her wealth to the community. She redistributed money by funding neighborhood projects or granting loans for homes or new business ventures. However, the lion's share she kept for herself. 
At the time, policy bankers were referred to as kings and queens, and in a sense, they were. They handled a great portion of the money in their respective neighborhoods and lived like royalty as a result. They were kind and powerful benefactors in their communities, and it behooved them to curry favor with their subjects. The nickname couldn't be more fitting for Stephanie, who gained a reputation as a larger-than-life yet benevolent hustler. So she was dubbed Queenie in the greater Manhattan area and affectionately called Madame St. Clair in her Harlem neighborhood, a sort of wink to her faux French heritage. Or perhaps a nod to her vivacious sense of fashion. Stephanie St. Clair, or Madame, was known for dressing to the nines. No matter the day, and no matter how far she had to walk up 125th Street, Stephanie wore high heels. They were the foundation of her outfit, often accompanied by a fur coat and a strand of pearls around her neck. On her head, she almost always sported an elegant, wide-brimmed hat, and sometimes a turban. It was all very much in vogue. According to researchers Carol J. Sherbaum and Donald H. Shepard, a person's clothing can greatly influence the behavior of others around them. The way an individual dresses holds a wealth of information from social power and socioeconomic class to personality and subculture. These details in fashion impact the way that person is perceived by those around them and thus influences how they're treated. For example, Sherbaum and Shepard found that layering clothing and wearing certain colors can present a more authoritative image for both men and women. Perhaps Stephanie knew this inherently. Most likely, her flamboyant yet elegant wardrobe was intentional, part of the carefully constructed facade of Madame St. Clair. And Stephanie could more than afford to dress her new identity in furs and silks. By occupying a corner of the market that white institutions refused to serve, she became incredibly wealthy. Her earnings were tax-free, after all. In her early 30s, she began making hundreds of thousands of dollars each year. And at the height of her career, in the late 1920s, that number increased to a quarter of a million dollars annually. Soon, she moved out of her shabby flat and into a beautiful brownstone on Edgecombe Avenue. Edgecombe was one of the most affluent streets in Harlem in an area known as Sugar Hill, and she was in good company. Impressive minds of her time, like W.E.B. Du Bois and future first African-American Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, would live on the same street a few years later. It was the home of Harlem's elite. But greater wealth meant greater risk. Now there was more to lose. And as much as Stephanie hated to acknowledge her vulnerabilities, she needed to ensure that the business was protected. So around this time, in the late 1920s, she hired the brawn of her operation to accompany her brains, Ellsworth Johnson. Ellsworth, or Bumpy, as he was known in the organized crime world, would go on to become one of the most notable black gangsters in New York City's history. But before he was notorious, he got his start as Madame St. Clair's personal bodyguard and goon, or, in more elegant terms, as what Stephanie called her chief enforcer. 
At the time, Bumpy was just a young man from South Carolina. He was gruff and skilled with a knife, a gun, or just good old fisticuffs. Stephanie trusted him with her life, and more importantly, her business. Stephanie found that Bumpy provided far more than muscle to her operation. He was a quick study with a shrewd mind. And as the policy bank rapidly grew, she was in need of a partner. So, within just a few years, Bumpy quickly graduated from bodyguard to right-hand man. And together, they transformed the policy bank into one of the most lucrative in Harlem. Bumpy and Queenie made an extraordinary team. Theirs was a relationship concocted from mutual respect and admiration, and perhaps love. Though Bumpy was roughly 10 years Stephanie's junior, he became her constant companion, escorting her to the symphony or the jazz club she loved so much. Rumors began spreading that the madam had found a younger lover in her bodyguard. However, these rumors were never confirmed. More likely the reason why Stephanie and Bumpy got along so well was because they were so alike. They were both fierce and ambitious with fiery tempers to match. Stephanie was known to be ruthless, particularly if you insulted her. Should you question her character, she would go on a furious, multilingual rampage. She could scream profanities in English, French, or even Spanish. She may not have been violent, but the madam was brutal. In her book, Harlem Godfather, Mamie Johnson, the wife of Bumpy Johnson, writes that Stephanie was known to slip off her expensive high heels when angry. Unencumbered, she would walk right up to an opponent and stand level with them, daring them to make their move. It was this aggressive approach that Madame St. Clair and Bumpy employed that elevated the policy bank to one of the most lucrative in New York City. And for a time, life was good for Stephanie St. Clair in her lavishly decorated brownstone on Sugar Hill. She had Bumpy by her side and the whole community of Harlem in her palms. But as the 1920s came to a close, her luck was about to change. A competitor was headed her way who would challenge Stephanie's dominion over the Harlem numbers racket. Madame St. Clair was about to go to war, and to win, she would need all the fierceness she could muster. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. For more information on Stephanie St. Clair, amongst the many sources we used, We found The World of Stephanie St. Clair, an entrepreneur, race woman, and outlaw in early 20th century Harlem by Shirley Stewart, extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll follow Stephanie St. Clair at the end of the Prohibition era, when she comes head-to-head with a ruthless mobster who threatens Harlem's peaceful policy bank scene. This period would spark a new life for the madam, leading her to use her famous fighting spirit for an entirely new cause, social activism. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Anthony Valsic. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Female Criminals is written by Alex Garland and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.